On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I became a fan as a as a little kid that watched MTV and loved you know, uh, R&B music and top 40 music. And then sort of, you know, when, when dancing in the dark came on, that was my gateway. And, um, in, in really that record was just huge for me, just in terms of not just enjoying it as a record, but just terms of, of having a record of that sort of substance, I think as a little kid being in fourth grade and, and being very, interested in song lyrics at that age. And welcome to a new episode of Set Lessing Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. And today we're getting off the Bruce train a little bit, but we are also kind of talking uh, music. And uh, one of my favorite things to do is to have musicians join me. And I have Jerry on the show. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes, and so tell us a little about yourself. Well, uh, my name is Jerry David DeSicca, and I used to be in a band called the Black Swans a long time ago, and I've been making solo records here in Texas for the last seven years, and I've got a new one coming out on October 16th, um, and it's called The Unlikely Optimist and His Domestic Adventures, and it's something that I made here in Texas and mostly in San Antonio. Um, and Augie Myers from Sir Douglas Quintet plays on it, as do a bunch of my friends and some other Texas musicians. And so uh, this will be my fourth solo record. Very nice, Jerry. Uh, now, give me the title of the album again. It's called The Unlikely Optimist in His Domestic Adventures, and it comes out one week before Bruce's new record. Uh, okay, well, you know, so you're... you're... I don't, I don't want to... I didn't want him to have to compete with me, so was, I asked him to wait one week. You're, you're like, let me let me be the opening act, right? So yes, I, I know he doesn't he does not prefer opening acts, but I, I snuck in there once again. So. Very nice. Well, that is a great title. Thank I, you. I love that. that. That is such a fun title. Um, so I always like to start at the beginning, Jerry. So talk about where did you grow up at? Where, what part of the country, and uh, was your family musical? Well, my family was was not musical, but I grew up mostly in Ohio, and so a couple years of my childhood was was living outside of Cleveland, which was which was kind of where I discovered uh, Springsteen's music, just because it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then moved to Cincinnati, where at the time it was nowhere. <laughs> and, and um 
but uh, and then went to, went to school at Ohio State and, and started playing gigs then. And then it had moved to, you know, Philadelphia, New Mexico, back to Ohio. Um, started making records with my old band in, in 2004 um, and then moved to Texas like in 2000, I guess, 15 or something like that. Um, but it always been a Springsteen fan. And, and the good thing about spending so much time in Ohio was that, you know, he'd always play multiple shows in Cleveland. Um, and so it was always fun to be able to see him two nights in a row. Um, and, uh, so I've been, I've been a fan a long time. I probably, the first time I saw him was my family was not musical right. and not really in the music, but I became a fan as a, as a little kid that watched MTV and loved you know, uh, R&B music and top 40 music. And then sort of, you know, when, when Dancing in the Dark came on, that was my gateway. And, um, and, and really that record was just huge for me, just in terms of not just enjoying it as a record, but just terms of, of having a record of that sort of substance, I think, as yeah. a little kid being in fourth grade and, and being very, interested in song lyrics at that age and buying a lot of like um lyric magazine uh, music magazines like focused on the lyrics and kind of sure. studying that um and and having that as sort of like the the sort of epiphany of what yeah. of what words could be in top 40 music which isn't to say that like in 84 he was the only person doing that like prince definitely had a lot of weight to, to what he was singing about. Um, but, uh, it was, it was very, that was the sort of gateway for me. And I became a fan from the time I was in eighth grade and, or I'm sorry, fourth grade, probably. What, and probably by the time I was in eighth grade, I would, you know, I got to see him on the tunnel love tour. What I, I think is interesting and, and I'm sure you've thought about this, but wh why do you think you had such a passion for music and, and, um, when the rest of your family didn't, I mean, you know, this was kind of an outlier, I right? I think I was adopted. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I was definitely the only one that read a lot, um, and was also kind of interested in the arts. Um, and you know, it, it wasn't just that I was a music fan. It was just that I became like very obsessive and, you know, went from like buying lots of records, uh, as a kid to, you know, working in record stores later on for like 13, 14 years and um, ended up, you know, I produced records, too, for other musicians. So it was something that I connected with just very early on without having any I didn't ha I don't have an older brother or sister. Yeah. But, you know, definitely always sought out once I became kind of a music guy, just always kind of sought out older people to try to help me kind of kind of hit me to things that I didn't know. Did uh, guitar first instrument? Saxophone. Saxophone, okay. You were uh, playing in, in the band? Due okay. to Mr. Clemens, you know. <laughs> uh, okay, I could see that. I, I could not get my, my hand on a tenor at that age. But, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I probably didn't get a guitar until I was 15. Okay. Um, and, and by then... I mean, I was still a huge Springsteen fan. That never sort of wavered. Yeah. Um, but that, that became kind of the gateway into singer-songwriters and, and 
you know, by the time I got had a guitar, I was very much about Springsteen, Dylan, Lou Reed, um, the Grateful Dead, and yeah, uh, and but you know, basically anybody that was like a songwriter that was doing something kind of literary in a lyrical way. Did do you remember your first song you wrote? I do. Yeah, Talk, I do. Uh, how old? I and... trip, I, I well. The first song I wrote with a guitar, I was 15, and probably okay. as soon as I got the guitar, I was trying to write songs. And, yeah. And, you know, and the first songs that I learned how to play were folk songs, and, and you know, like House of the Rising Sun, and, you know, Leaving on a Jet Plane, and Blowing in the Wind, and, um, because uh, I was just kind of always in, into that, but the first song I wrote was, like, kind of cribbed chords from from bob dylan's bucket of rain buckets of rain and uh so i always and i think dylan seemed much more manageable to me when i first sure. started playing guitar okay because at least that period of dylan that i was familiar with is is a young teen was you know kind of strumming an acoustic guitar and finger picking whereas springsteen was doing it all and that seemed um a little bit more challenging for me at the time, you know, in terms of playing lead guitar and, and being able to do all of that. I've been lucky enough, Jerry, to have a few uh, musicians on the show, and I think that's interesting because some of them don't remember writing songs early. Like, this was something <laughs> that came later that uh, maybe in their teens or in their 20s uh, where they they might write poetry or they may do stuff. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with in this kind of cliche, right? Live because you live in Texas, but um, Sarah Hickman is a friend of mine. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I saw Sarah Hickman play when I was 19. Yeah. Uh, in Columbus, Ohio, at a bar called Ludlow's. Yeah. Uh, I, I won tickets on the radio. She oh, how the, fun! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in '89, um, she was, I guess, in '88, um, she was living here in Dallas. She had gone to school in North Texas, and um, there's a small club, and they're still there, uh, uh, Club Dada in Deep Ellum. I played play there before, sure. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so every Monday night, she we, we saw her. She opened for a lady, uh, Miss Molly, and um, Miss Molly and the Passions at a time, and um, and Sarah was playing, and we went, she started playing Monday nights at uh, Club Dada, and I cannot believe we did this, but... Um, we didn't have kids, and mm-hmm. so Lynn and I like so we would get off work, go home, eat something really quick, and take a nap, and they would set the alarm, get up, drive to be at Deep Ellum by ten o'clock at yeah. night, watch her for a couple hours because she would play every Monday night, and then come home. You know, um, yeah. and we just went there every night. So we got to be good friends with Sarah. And when I've talked to Sarah, she like she always remembered writing songs. That's you know, yeah. she just it, it was just it was as much a breathing with her. Well, you know, I think I would have been a better guitar player if I had focused more on that right away. But I mean, as soon as I learned three chords, like I was trying to write yeah. songs. And and that was the goal for me of playing guitar was yeah. to write songs. It was it was not because I thought, you know, I was going to be like a hot lead guitar player. It was right. as much as I like lead guitar and I love rock and roll it, at the time. And maybe it's because I was more introverted or I was more anxious or 
I just found it intimidating. It felt like more of the, you know, um, sort of moody singer songwriter, which I still do a lot of that stuff too. Most of my stuff is not super upbeat, but, um, was much more manageable and, and I could capture, uh, my literary aspirations in a song when I kind of leaned in towards that side of the genre. You know, Jerry, I can imagine a young Jerry MTV, I mean, Dancing in the Dark, great video. I know we now make fun of it, you know, Bruce's dancing, but, and the, you know, Courtney Cox going on stage, but, you know, Dancing in the Dark has a great, um, it is a great song. You know, Mm -hmm. he plays it now and he gets someone on stage with him, but I could see a young, you know, a young, uh, Jerry loving that beat and loving well, the music, it, and then it's got a great beat, and it's got that sort of like introspective, you know, I want to yeah. change my clothes, my hair, my face, that right. sort of thing that I think speaks to. I mean, I was I was in fourth grade when it came out, but I mean, it speaks to like young adults. I think, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it is it is self reflective in that way that is also very uh, very surfacey, you know, whereas. You know, that got me in the door with the record. Um, But then those other songs, I mean, not that there's not super fun songs on that record, but because I was so interested in lyrics, being able to try to ask my parents questions about songs like Born in the USA and My Hometown, it was definitely like a gateway record to me of, you know, before I ever heard Dylan. Mm -hmm. And there was really not, I mean, there was a lot of kind of like white guys with, electric guitars on MTV at that point in time. Yeah. But I don't think that a lot of them had the sort of depth in their writing that you, you know, in, in maybe I don't listen to the radio very much anymore. I mean, maybe there is a song with this sort of um, yeah. political depth of, of my hometown. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is, but yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very, um, to be able to kind of meet that song at that age was very special. And, and then to be able to get the 75 to 85 box and, and hear a song like This Land Is Your Land kind of reframed from a childhood sort of song you would sing in school into something more plaintive. Um, So it was, I can't say that when Tunnel of Love came out, I understood it very well, but I did kind of understand what was going on, like with the political social narratives that he was telling at that age. Yeah, and you... I've had someone on the show once that said you don't appreciate Tunnel of Love till you've had your heart broken a couple of times, mm-hmm. and I think there's some truth to that statement. But I also, it sounds like um, as you grew, as not only you know as a young adult, you know you became a teenager and a young adult, you Bruce kind of was a companion as you grew up, right? As you grew, oh, totally. you're learning more of his music. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, and then throughout high school, you know, the records of his I listened to the most were, uh, you know, uh, Greetings and The Wild of the Innocent and Born to Run. And I mean, I like Darkness and in Nebraska quite a bit, but I got more into those in college, I think. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like that, that Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly tribute came out, The Vision Shared. And yeah, that really got me into Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly, and he was also, like, at the time, they were rerunning, you know, the Roy Orbison special all the time on PBS and the Harry Chapin special when he played Remember When Music. And so he became not just, like, my favorite musician, but he became sort of, like, my 
you know, algorithm, I guess, sure. you know, he was the one that was kind of leading me down these, these different paths of, of finding new music or new books or, yeah. you know, kind of new way to think about things, which is, which is awesome to be able to have that when your brain is still developing and you're a teenager, you know? Yeah. Um, I, um, Harry Chapin is someone that I really have a lot of affection and love for. I was, I was lucky enough to see him live before he, uh, passed mm-hmm. away. I was, I was a kid in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Um, oh, cool. I, this was like, I guess I'd been out of high school maybe a year and he came and there was this huge storm. And, uh, when we got to the theater, um, it wasn't the big arena. It was kind of the theater there at the civic center. And there was just a chair and a mic and, um, a guitar stand and uh you know he came out and he said bad weather the band couldn't make it hope you don't mind just me and then he continued it felt like he played three hours i know he didn't but he played and just it was like you were in the living room with harry chapin and it was it is truly is one of my favorite memories um and i always think of him like when you're discussing um singer songwriters and storytellers and people weaving tales um Mm -hmm. You mentioned seeing him finally on the Tunnel of Love. Um, I preface this with every time I ask this question, Jerry. I don't think the number of times you've seen Bruce is a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are because a lot of things can drive that because of economics, your age, where sure. you're located. But for the record, do you keep? did you track how many times you've seen him? You know, I, I it would if I had a guess, it would probably be around 30. Um, you know, I saw him once at the Tunnel Love Tour, and then I saw him, I probably saw him 13 times on, the, like, the 92-93 tour, you know, because at that point in time, I was 17, 18, I had a car, you know, I had a job and not a lot of bills, um, and, and I loved the, luck. I mean, I still love the Lucky Town record, I think it's, I think it's one of his best records, and so, um, and it was kind of at that peak of, your fandom, you know, he hadn't toured in a long time. And, um, so I saw him a bunch then, and then being in Ohio, I saw him probably every time he did something up at the rock and roll hall of fame, like the Jimmy Rogers tribute, the Woody Guthrie tribute, the induction. Um, and, uh, you know, getting to see him two or three times, maybe four times on the ghost of Tom Joad and, Seen him with Joe Grusecki at Nick's Fat City and, you know, which was awesome. Yeah, I, I, I lied and called up Grusecki's record label and told him I was a journalist. And so they, they, they got me in. I, I brought my friend and he brought a camera and pretended he was the photographer. They, they caught us. They, they, as soon as we got there and got the tickets, somebody from Grusecki's label was there and they're like, you guys are not journalists and photographers, but whatever. You can go anyways. They're oh, really... that's that's so great. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've heard this. I talk about it all the time. There is a website called My Boss Time, mm-hmm. which is this amazing database. Echo is the owner of the website. It has every tour, and okay. it, you can create your own profile. And uh-huh. then it's free, and then you go and you can select, oh, yes, I was at that show, yes, I was at that show, and then behind the scenes, it'll give you a database of what's the most songs you've heard, what is your rarities, um, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, my boss oh, time. Yeah. 
Um, fun. Yeah, I saw yeah. Him, and I saw him a bunch of times after that, and like yeah. saw it, you know. And I saw, I was looking at your your uh, your web page. Yeah. We must have just missed each other as book people. We must yeah. be ships in the night. I was up there yes. for that. So, yeah, um, you got your seven seconds with Bruce as well, right? You got seven. Um, <laughs> I joke. I don't. Uh, I, I I've told no. this story multiple times, Jerry. You know, I'm I'm driving down from Austin. I'm driving down to Houston, going to Austin, and I'm just saying over and over again, like Luca Broxa and The Godfather, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Mm-hmm. And uh, what I ended up saying is um, last year I was unemployed for nine months. I listened to Better Days and Land of Hope and Dreams every day to keep me motivated. Thank you for that. And mm-hmm. by the time I think I said um, like four words their handler was going next um but um and i've said this multiple times i needed to say it more than i needed him to hear it yeah totally yeah and yes better days it better days will probably better days of land of hope and dreams are my favorite two songs and uh, so yeah Yeah. that's it well i you know i after i drove back i know i don't know if you stuck around austin but i drove back to where i lived in in bulverde and on the way back I kept thinking, I was like, did I enjoy that? You know, and, and and then it wasn't until about an hour into my drive that I realized, oh, wait a second, I'm starstruck. Like, I had never been starstruck before, so I didn't know how it felt. So I had this weird sort of stunned, empty feeling, you know, and I was not expecting that, I think. And I did get a few words out, too. And I had given him a CD of a guy that I had co-produced uh, with my friend Jeb Loy Nichols. We produced a record of this guy named Larry John Wilson. And it was the last record Larry John made before he passed. And um, Larry John was on Monument in the 1970s, but his biggest fan was John Hammond Sr. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to give Bruce this record. And you know, we're kind of doing the picture, and I'm being, and I go, "Can I give you a CD?" And he goes, "Give it to that guy." And I said, "John Hammond Sr. was a big fan of this guy." And then Bruce stopped before the next person came up and said, "Just make sure you get that CD for me." Oh, very cool. That's so that's I a could, nice I story. I could see his like eyes lit up like I broke yeah. through the nice. You know? That's a, that's but, a great um, story. So that was pretty cool to be able to give him that. Um, and, and I think it would be a record that he would enjoy because it was solo acoustic and it was yeah. somebody that had spent a lot of time with Towns and, and Guy Clark and stuff. So it was pretty, yeah. pretty real. Um, I, and I, uh, I was. Yeah, so, yeah, I was and, asked. And I got, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. And I got to see him on Broadway. So that was probably okay. the last time I saw him. Yeah. Um, I was asked. A lot of people said, are you going to tell him about the podcast? Because I was doing Set Lusting Bruce at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, I just. It felt, it felt strange to tell him about it, you know, and and so I didn't. I wore a Set Listing Bruce T-shirt, I and, saw the, that and the picture, right? Yeah, but um, and you know, and, and now I did. I, you know, there was a place where you could leave, and I did write a letter saying, "Hey, I do a podcast. I've talked to people, and uh, and I, I I put a flash drive with a bunch of episodes, and I oh. I wrote on the envelope." Not a demo. <laughs> like I am not right. trying to get a record deal. Right. Have no idea if anyone heard it or not, but that's good. All right, I want to talk to you, Jerry. 
when did you decide you you're you're writing songs, you're playing the guitar? When did you decide to make music your career, or was that just always in the cards? I I think it was something that I you know I being in college in the '90s that was kind of like the peak of major labels signing kind of left to center musicians probably since like the early seventies, you know, and kind of, you know, there was like a real trickle down. There was tons of money there. So at the time I was seeing a lot of really individual and unique singer songwriters, you know, get record deals and, and, and watching that be very sustainable, or at least it seems sustainable from the outside. I don't know if it really was, but, you know, being able to see people like Vic Chestnut and Richard Buckner and Mark Eitzel and, and, uh, people like that that were very much felt like what I aspired to. And at that point in time, I was already pretty serious about it. I mean, I think I really felt like, you know, even when I first picked up the guitar, I didn't know how to make a record then or what a studio even looked like. But I think I knew that when I first started writing songs that I wanted them documented as a way for people to hear them um, because I didn't know if I could get on stage. Um, and, but I did feel like I valued recorded music greatly. And I, re, I, I valued records greatly in the same way that I did books, that they were something that people could engage with, with their friends, but got the most out of when they were sitting alone in a room. Um, it, it, cause, it, cause that was my own experience, you know, so I think I made that decision pretty early. And so it took me a long time to do it. I didn't make my first record with my old band um, until I was, you know, I was trying to do it for several years, but I was bouncing around a lot and until 2004. Um, and I guess we probably made, I don't know, five or six records, um, maybe, maybe seven, but um, and and then it just kind of became like it's not my full time job anymore, but it's something that is still like a huge part of my life. Um, so it isn't kind of how I sustain myself of producing records or making making records just because I don't uh, I think my records are, are maybe less commercial than they were before. And also, um, I, I just don't tour a lot. That hasn't been the focus for me. Um but it's it's still a huge part of my life, and I still usually up until you know this year would always tour it a couple times throughout the year. Um, where, what what kind of, I guess you know kind of as we're going, what what kind of I mean you you're in a band and then you decide to go off on your own. Um, talk to me a little bit that and and why did you move to Texas? Well, the, you know, part of it is my, my partner wanted to leave Ohio. I was on the road a lot. I was leaving every winter, you know, and I was playing in California or in Spain and Portugal and kind of doing this thing to escape the winters. And the band had also kind of, it had run its course a little bit. Um, we, um, my, the person I started the band with died and we had done, we had put out our second to last record he had recorded right before he passed. And then the last record we made was kind of a, uh, 
uh, all the songs were about him and dealing with his loss. And it just kind of felt like that was a good record to kind of end that chapter of my musical life with. And um, everybody in the band, you know, was was getting older, too, and, and you know, kind of didn't did not want to spend as much time traveling anyways. And yeah, and I was still very committed to, to music and it felt like an opportunity to make music with different people that was not in a band format. I think bands are amazing because it, it kind of locks you into certain colors that you can put on your palette. Right. Um, but, you know, wanting to kind of hear your clothes with, with different colors or different clothes on or whatever the analogy you want to use yeah. is, is something that most songwriters want to experience. Um, so kind of moving to Texas was a way to to kind of make a change in in a lifestyle and um, have have a shared experience with my partner and and also um, kind of have a new musical adventure at the same time. You know, um, one of the things I'm fascinated by, um, someone had asked me when Bruce was going to publish his autobiography, they said, hey. You know, what are you looking for, Jesse? And I said, if I, I said, I'm, I'm one, I'm just hoping to, you know, learn more about him. But if I, if I had a wish list, there would be two things: um, him talking about firing the band, you know, breaking uh-huh. up the band, and he talks nothing about his first marriage. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And mm-hmm. and I, and I got both of those in the book. I think he was very clear in the book that the first marriage was was all on him and that he you know just was not ready and and i thought that was a very open about how much he adored juliana and just but he he couldn't understand why she would love him right Mm -hmm. and then talking about the band and about the things and then when you hear little steven over the past couple years he has talked about that he regrets leaving the E Street Band, and he now tells bands, "Don't break up. Uh-huh. You know, you 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 keep that core band together. Go do solo projects. Go have fun. Go do whatever you want. But you keep that opening in case you want to get back with that. And, and mm-hmm. I think, as you're talking about, right? You can, in your case, there was a specific end to the band. You you're, you know, you're the co-founder of the band. You know, you you lost him." And now then you guys are like, okay, do we really want to do this? And this kind of seems like a nice way to end the story. But, right, you, I could see you wanting the creative um, – to explore the different creative ways of telling music in a different way, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean all those guys are still my friends, and, and I think most of them, if not all of them, have, have been involved in my solo records some ways, either as like an engineer or a percussionist or – a bass player or a, or a guitar player. And so, and they're constantly, you know, in my life and in, in contact with me. Um, so it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really even a breakup. It was more like we just stopped. Um, you know, we had, we had completed the terms of the record deal that we were in with the label and, you know, and, and it seemed like, uh, the right record to kind of end things on, if not then when, and, so, um, and I, you know, when I read that book and, you know, I, I loved the book, you know, I just thought it was fantastic. And my, my only thing that I wish and was if he talked about more about 
you know, playing the piano, because I think so many of his great songs are, are written on the piano. And um, but uh, when he has that story is and I don't I don't want to blame the wrong bandmate here, but I think it was on the Born in the USA tour where he's out there and they're opening with Born in the USA and he's looking around. And then like two of the guys are still in the back playing ping pong or something like that. You know, I I felt that. You know what I mean? You know, and I was kind of like when when it, when you're the guy that is responsible for everything, l- little things like that. And obviously that's a much more significant thing when you're playing Wembley Arena or wherever that show was compared to the little clubs that I play in or the sort of, um, you know, the, the sense of responsibility is not quite as significant. But um you kind of feel that and you're, you kind of feel like, man, I want to, I want this to be a different way, or I've got, you know, uh, different expectations for this than maybe some other people do. And, and, you know, there's, uh, I, th- and I think maybe told you in, um, one of the emails when we were setting this up, my last record, this record burning daylight, um, I used Bruce's drummer that was not in the street band, you know, um, the drummer from, Lucky Town, um, who is also the, Gary Malibur, who is also the drummer for Ghost of Tom Joad and um, played with him on the Academy Awards and had always been one of my favorite drummers. And so, you know, and that was, he was the drummer for Moondance. And, you know, so it wasn't like the, the band that Bruce went out on the road with, I think, was one thing where it's like he wanted a band that could do all these things that did not really remind people of the East Street Band, except for for Roy, who, cause who else could make those songs happen, you know, for, but, um, I think he was like really thoughtful yeah. about the way that like he did make the music different. And, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a thrill to play with Gary and be able to hear stories about him making that music with Bruce and, you know, Gary's one of the, one of the great rock and roll drummers of all time. So I don't, I don't think that it's like, uh, you know, Max is such a specific sound. And, you know, when you listen to those two new songs that are out already, I mean, it just, you know, you know, right away from the drum hit, it's, it's Max Weinberg, you know? And so I, I think he does gravitate towards players that have a signature sound, even when he's trying to do new things, you know? So I've had a lot of people on the podcast that talk about, and, and I, I'm surprised, I, I'm always happy to hear this, but um, they will talk about that they think the other band is a underappreciated part of his career. You know, they've talked about seeing those many shows, and and like mm-hmm. they understand the mythos of the E Street Band, but those tours and those songs, there is a lot to be said about enjoying that that phase of his career. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's hard for me as, as a musician to understand how people see that any differently than when he goes out solo acoustic. Like, to me, it's it's not personal. To me, it's an artistic choice. And, um, you, know, do, you know, do I think Human Touch would have been better with the E Street Band? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, you know, they're, they're a live band, but... Um, I also think that he wrote some really great songs. And I think when you listen to like, you know, the Christic shows and stuff like that, which, you know, 
I mean, I was I had that bootleg, you know, before Human Touch came out and would hear and, you know, you can't you can't deny that, you know, that there's some just incredible songs from those records. So from a musician and, and someone who's, you know, um, at least made part of your career making music, when Western Stars come out, what was your thoughts? Uh, I'm into the idea, you know, and I'm, I'm into um, uh, the exploration of that. I can't, I can't say I've totally connected to it the way that I would like to. Um, and, and yeah, and some of it, you know, really, I mean, for me, I do have, I do have a hard time. I can usually see the, the force through the trees when it comes from like a song versus record making, you know, and, and the difference between a record and a song. Um, and I do kind of struggle with a lot of Springsteen's like, like, I love the songs on magic, but I, I have a really hard time listening to that because it's got a really bad drum sound and he's got the best drummer in the world on it. And he's got some really strange delay on his voice and stuff. And I just don't like the way it sounds. And I, and I understand what he modeled it after at that point in time to be on the radio, but I have a hard time listening to that record because of the way it sounds, even though I think that it's, it's some of his best songwriting that he's done in 20 years. Um, And so magic or uh, Western stars feels a little bit, like that to me at times um but i think it's a cool concept you know i mean i was always really into um you know what he was doing with streets of philadelphia and you know uh lift me up from the limbo soundtrack and the song he did for the crossing guard for that sean penn movie um missing i think and um and that idea of doing something with with beats and synths and narrative and um you know, so I like it when he experiments. Right. Did uh, you know? Did you watch the film? I did. I got to see it in the theater. Okay, good. The All right. Because yeah. a couple of people who have not connected with Western Stars had not seen the film, and I've suggested that whether you like the music or not, the the filmmaking process and, and seeing the other side of him, him sharing, I think is worth experimenting. I yeah. think that's interesting. Um, I want to ask you – and, and, and then I want to get back to your music, but I, you, you made me think of something. I have a really good friend who served two tours in the Navy in a submarine. And um, mm-hmm. Ken cannot watch a submarine movie because he just sees everything that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, he just cannot right. turn his brain off. Um, right. And then um, I know I'll read um, – I'll read people interviewed and they'll say, um, like TV writers will say, I can't watch a sitcom or a drama on TV because I'm just seeing the beats and I'm just critiquing it as yeah. someone like, okay, they really missed the, you know, the act break. They should have had a stronger break there or, they, or that was really well done. Is it you mentioned sometimes like on magic? It's hard for you to turn that the musician, the magician, the musician part of your brain off and just enjoy as a fan. Is is that always the case, or just depends? It's always the case. I can see that. And um, and it's harder to do 
now with new records? Because I understand, you know, Springsteen's records, especially like he is trying to he is somebody that has always kind of embraced technology. You know, he is he's not somebody like Bob Dylan that is 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 doing something that is out of time. You know, Springsteen's always tried to, you know, you know, he used Lynn drum machines and, you know, he's used synths and, you know, he's he's interested in new music and how his voice fits into contemporary culture. And at the same time, like honoring who he is, you know, and and, and, and is it going to be believable to hear his voice and his songs in what, you know, whatever version of a modern context he he chooses, and he's obviously got access to everything in the world in terms of those decisions. So, um, so I think that's tough. I do think that, you know, uh, he benefits from live performances on his records. You know, um, you know, Lucky Town was just him and a drummer. Like Ghost to Tom Joad is live performances. Like, um, there's something about, I think, his sound in his songs and his voice and you know his singing is his has been incredible and keeps getting better and in finding new avenues in his in his vocal range you know i think you know when i i remember seeing you know limbo in the theater when it came out in 99 or 2000 a new springsteen had a song in it and and as lift me up was playing i still didn't know it was him you know and um so i think he's always explored that and uh, but I do think it's tough. I think it's tough for a lot of those guys to kind of figure out when they want to do something that feels where they don't want to feel like a dinosaur. You, you know? know, and and I've been very vocal that, you know, I think at this point in his career and I actually think probably the last 20 years, you know, he's he's earned the right to do whatever he wants to do. Um, Absolutely. There were people complaining about, you know. Broadway and playing to the rich and you know and I'm like look if the guy wants to do a Broadway show he's earned the right right and and if he wants to do a Jimmy Webb Glenn Campbell sounding album hey you know that that's his right and uh, I had a recent guest who you know sent me an email and when he heard letter to you and he's like you do an album in five days. It used to take you five months to make an album, you know, yeah. you know, surprise me, Bruce. And I'm like, look, if you want to get the band together and say, Hey, you know, for, for fun, let's see if we can just record live and let's do this. What would it sound yeah. like? Yeah. I, you know, I, good for I him. think the sound of those two songs are, are great. I mean, yeah. I think it's, I think it's to be determined whether we'll ever truly know if it was meant to only be five days. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, and he's clearly going for, I mean, he got Bob Claremountain to mix him, yeah. you know? So it's like, you know, he knows that brings kind of the feel of the E Street Band. And, you know, Max's drums haven't sounded that good in, you know, 25 years probably on his records. So, And when I went to, and I, I don't, did you make any of the River Tour, the the, the 2000? Yeah. You know? I did not make okay. that, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, so when you watch the band, um, you could tell that they were aware the road in front of them is shorter than the road behind them. Um, yeah. You know, 
you had lost Bowie, you lost Prince during that tour, Glenn Fry, and right. just the idea, it's not that anyone is sick or anyone, but the idea, we don't know how many more times we're going to be able to do this. And there was a sense of joy that they were like, oh, I can't believe we're still getting to do this. You know, we're we're in our 60s and we're getting to play, you know, we're getting to play music. Um, I get that sense of the two songs of that this is not in a more not in a fatal way like okay this will probably be the last album we ever do i do think there is hey let's look at where we are in our career and let's talk about this and do it so i'm i'm looking forward to the album i I, you know i i I am too i i wish it was on four sides and not three sides i hate that fourth etched side of vinyl type of thing yeah uh as as a vinyl guy but um the um but yeah, and it's like, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with kind of having different ideas of what you want records to be, you yeah. know? I mean, you know, when he's making Darkness on the Edge of Town or even Born in the USA and this idea that this is all you can do with your life, um, he, lot probably all of his favorite rec- musicians made records in less than five days, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, people only spent that long to make records in the 1970s and the 1980s, you know, really, yeah. so... Um, you know, if, if he's looking at himself and he's just like, well, you know, I've got these skills, I've got this band, I got this studio, I don't need to balance out the sound. I've already got the sounds worked out. Yeah. You know, you save time right there. But I mean, you know, Muddy Waters didn't spend five days to make a record or Chuck Berry's been, yeah. you know. So if those are your heroes, I think it makes perfect sense that he wouldn't want to spend a lot of time in the studio. Um, and And he's already got his own team and his own place and right. so everything takes a shorter amount of time anyways and um so that's probably the equivalent of you know two weeks in the 70s so um i'm excited for it and you know he may have just wanted to make a record so he could go on tour with everybody before they get too old and there's nothing wrong with that either so not at all um so going back um You've got a new album. It's coming out, as you mentioned. It's it's the prequel to Bruce's album. You guys didn't want to compete. Uh, talk a little bit about your the the origin story of this album. Like, what were you what were you thinking? What were you doing? And where were you going for? I was I started it a while back, so this was not a record kind of made in quarantine. But I was I was working on my two records before that at the time. I made a record that came out in early 2018 called Time the Teacher that was made over in the UK. Um, Some producers over there um, took my songs and they put a piano player and some horn players on it and some some backing singers. And and I don't play guitar on it. And they they just kind of I sing the songs and it just kind of is this very different thing. You know, it's kind of got a Van Morrison feel to it. and that came out in the UK. And while they were working on that, then I made that record Burning Daylight that I was said I was mentioned with Gary and two labels had paid for that at the time. So in between all that, when I had a little bit of extra money, I had these other songs and um, they kind of fit together. And I went to a studio in San Antonio and cut those and Augie Myers, who I love because of uh, Sir Douglas Quintet and him playing with Dylan and Tom Waits. He lives in San Antonio, so he played on it. Um, Eve, my partner, sings on it. She's got a beautiful voice. And 
Um, Kane and Faulkner and Jovan Karcic were the rhythm section. They actually overdubbed it back in Ohio. And there were these these kind of songs that um, uh, just kind of evolved. And then I kind of added electric guitar. Don Sento played guitar on it. And then this horn player, which has uh, some Clarence vibes because there's not many horn players that came out of the 1960s anymore. Um, and his name's Frank Rodarte. And he uh, he was the first uh, strip club band leader in Vegas in the 60s. And then he came back to San Antonio and played with Doug Somm and He's uh, kind of does a Chicano soul band in San Antonio. And so it's kind of this mix between kind of Texas music and folk music. And, and it's very poetic. It's, you know, there's not a lot of big choruses. Um, and it really kind of addresses more of, uh, you know, kind of living inside yourself a little bit and, and trying to figure out what you have in your own life and what you have that you have control over to kind of guide and sustain your own happiness. So it, it sounds great. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing it. And um, I, I, I want, I'm looking forward to it and, and kind of hearing where you're going. Um, but I do want to ask you the practical. So how do you promote a CD when you can't tour? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, it's you know you're you're the promoting a record by tour anymore is is a little bit challenging anyways um it's definitely how i used to do it you know there used to be a weekly paper in every town and you get a show and it's a good show and people show up and you get a write-up in the weekly paper and you know um but that isn't really is how it works as much anymore you know and in in touring is a way more for a lot of bands to make money than it is to promote the record. And, and the record is really for a lot of musicians is used to kind of sell the tour. Yeah. So it's, it's kind that of makes sense. Okay. How it used to be. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out my own ways to do it. You know, I, the, it comes out in a week and a half or so, and hopefully it gets some reviews and, and uh, people will be able to find it on streaming services and, in, in band camp and um, so and it's out there and my music is is never really been like this thing that has kind of set the world on fire right away but it's all of my records have have um, had you know they've always been discoveries for people um, so uh, if there's anything really good about streaming services anymore I think that it's that it it allows people to access them. Yeah. And um, that, you know, you, you know, you're always kind of sending out these messages into the world anyways. Um, and you're not as reliant on maybe people showing up in a club on the night that you're the one night you're there in that town that year to engage, yeah. with it, you know. Yeah, that's that's that sounds true. And I, I guess I, you know, my first thought is. Once again, my friend Sarah, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, she's doing her show, and then afterwards, she's got her CDs, and she's like, that's, that's you know, what you did. yeah, yeah. That, that I could see that. Um, talk a little bit. Uh, you've shared a little bit, but talk a little bit. A couple of the songs on the album. What? Are, I'm sure you love all of them, as you, you know, a, a parent loves all their children. But are there a couple that are especially 
you're proud of or you think are pretty special? Yeah, thank you. Um, there's a song that's like the the second song on the record called um, Coffee Black that um, is a song about kind of growing older and in, in mellowing out without kind of losing your identity. Um, I'm very proud of that one. There's a song after that that are, that's about my pet toads um, called Texas Toads. And I'm always kind of looking to find, uh, trying to write songs that other people have not written before. So um, being able to kind of write a song about my pet toads is a way of of, of finding joy in the little things in life that are literally beneath our feet. Um, I'm, I'm awfully happy with that song. And, and there's a song on there called Country Cookie. That is a duet with my partner and Eve Searles, and she has a beautiful voice. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I like them all. But um, uh, the first song on the record uh, is called I See Horizons, and that's more of a thesis statement. It's really the only loud song on the whole record. Um, but, you know, I, I like them all. I mean, I, I don't think any of my songs are, you know, some maybe are more immediate than others, but I think that they are um, my favorite songwriters are the ones that are, are always you can kind of keep going back to and you can discover new things, both kind of lyrically and musically about them. And so hopefully that's the case with this record. That's what that's what I aspire to. Um, so where's the best place to get this? If somebody wants to buy it, uh, they can buy it on Bandcamp. Um, it's going to come out on vinyl, but there's sort of this sort of, uh, I guess, film project in the works. Um so the vinyl's not going to come out till that gets figured out. Okay. But if people want to buy the digital files, they can buy them on Bandcamp. Um, but, you know, if they want to stream it, that's awesome, too. You know, mm-hmm. um, I own the Masters, so um, I'm putting it out myself this time. Okay. So, um, you know, however somebody wants to enjoy it and, and tell their friends about it is, is very helpful. Yeah, and that's going to be October 16th? Yes. Um, the Unlikely Optimist and His Domestic Adventures. I, I love that title. I just think Thank that so is much. just a, a wonderful um, story behind the title. Is there a story well, behind the title? Uh, I think it's because I wanted the, the record is it goes back and forth between being serious and playful. And I didn't want a title track. And I wanted something that was going to try to capture the scope of all the songs mm-hmm. and and make it sound like, you know, the the trip that it is. You know, I've got one song on there that's yeah. 13 minutes long. Oh, you nice. Know, that, um, is, is a trilogy. And so um, I wanted that the the title to be kind of suggestive of the different the different kind of sections of the record. So, Jerry, I normally ask when we get a tour are there songs that of Bruce's you're chasing? And I would like an answer to that. But as an artist, uh-huh. is there something you haven't gotten to do yet, like someone you to play with or something you've wanted to do as an artist uh, that you oh, haven't man. got to do yet? You know, there's always, you know, it's always the people you want to work with are the people that are your heroes and, and the Absolutely. people that you get to um and and like I said, it was a huge it was a huge thrill to work with Gary Malibur and 
Uh, and I've got, you know, getting to work with Augie Myers was really, was really special. And Ralph White, who's a great Texas musician plays on the record too. And, yeah. um, my first record, I, I, Spooner Oldham is on, and uh, so I've always tried to engage musicians that I love, and so I don't know. I, I feel like by saying it, I would I would jinx it. Okay, but, there I mean, you go. You know, I mean, I wouldn't. You know, I know nobody's touring, but I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't turn down an opening act slot for some people. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a venue that you would love to play that you haven't had a chance to yet? When we get, I mean, back I'd to still normal. like to play the Ryman. You yeah. know. It's it's something that kind of wasn't as active when when my band had a had a booking agent. Yeah. You know, I've been to the Ryman a bunch, you know, for funerals. Um, yeah. But uh, I've not played the Ryman, and uh, so you know, that's probably that's probably the one. I feel like you know, I was really lucky. You know, I got to tour Europe so many different times, and in yeah. in touring in Spain and Portugal and playing these, you know, we wouldn't we'd play some bars, but we'd play a lot of cultural centers and. Yeah. And, and being able to play rooms like that and stand in those rooms is 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 incredible. So if um you know if I don't ever get to tour again or who knows what's going to happen with right. the way things work, but I, it's going to hit sort of kind of medium level touring musicians. I think the hardest absolutely uh, for the long term. Yeah. Um, but you know I uh, I feel very lucky for all the opportunities that I've had. That's that's you know? that's that's great. So. Yeah. Uh, how about it? Are there any Springsteen songs you're chasing? I've heard so many great ones, and okay. and I it, and it's been so neat that, um, you know when, his when the when the Nugs set came out of his yeah. Devil's Dust show from Columbus, Ohio, I'd been telling people for years that it was the best show I had ever seen him do. Oh wow! And, and so I finally had some proof. Oh, um, that's great. <laughs> but, uh, um. I I've been you know when the river box came out I definitely it definitely made me feel like I would like to hear Stray Bullet you know um and uh I I did get to hear Restless Nights a couple times and um uh I don't know I mean I I feel like I I I don't I don't think about things as much in terms of songs as much as in terms of like how his current band could do those songs, you know, um, and what would sound good with that band. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a pretty big Niels Lofgren fan. Mm -hmm. So, so anything that he does with a, with a guitar solo would be all right too. Yeah. That's, that was, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough year before last, right. He was touring and he did a solo, show at the Kessler here in Dallas and I was able to go hear him. He lost his guitar. Yes, right that after. was yes, that was the right before they were stolen. And yeah. so he was actually playing borrowed guitars. Yeah. Which he canceled was for the San Antonio show, so I didn't get to see him. Yeah, that's, that's um, a but shame. I, did you drive down to see little Steven in Austin on when he played there? No, I saw he he was in Dallas and he played the Soul Tour. And then uh -huh. they I had when he was doing the second round, um they ended up canceling the show because of everything that's going. Uh, he was sick, not with COVID. He got yeah. ill and had to cancel. He was going to be in Fort Worth, and so uh, got to hear him, and that was pretty nice. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. got to meet Niels Kessler. Was such a small venue. He went out afterwards and stood in line and signed CDs, and so I got a picture taken with him. 
and That's then awesome. yeah, and yeah. then little Steven the night before uh, he was playing he was playing at the Majestic here in Dallas. Um, he went to the um, uh, the um, not House of Blues, but the anyway. I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now on the uh, of the rock and roll cafe, right? And uh, oh. he was he was supposed to be there to do uh, a set, his DJ set, and they ended up not doing him. So he was just eating dinner with his whole band, and so um, I got to uh, I got a picture taken with him, and it was it was a lot of fun. So it was good. Oh man, let me think. Well, oh, let me tell you this though, because you may have you as we were talking about Niels Lofgren. Yeah. Um, I I used to I free I freelance for a lot of labels over the years, and one yeah. of the reissues that I got to work on was um, a woman named Elise Weinberg, and she made a record called Grease Paint Smile. Okay. And um, I Niels, it's it may be one of the first records he ever played on. Oh, nice. And so it was lost. It was she had one record come out. And then she made another record, and Neil Young plays on it, and so Niels Lofgren played on it through that. Um, and it never came out until a couple years ago. That's kind of nice. But yeah, so I got to email with Niels a little bit, and kind of he was super nice and helped identify which songs he played on because there was no track listing at that point in time. And it and it came out um, uh, about four or five years ago, I guess. Finally, after all those years, it was recorded in 1970. But um, so if there's any Niels fans out there, uh, Elise Weinberg's Grease Paint Smiles is 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 almost day one. Oh, wow. That's that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's very, very cool. Cool. Um, all right. The Unlikely Optimist and his domestic adventures, October 16th, uh, Bandcamp, uh, Google, uh, Jerry um, and uh, DeSica. DeSica? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and yeah, and uh, Jerry David DeSico, and you're going to be able to find him. Uh, and I will include a link, uh, Bandcamp, in the show notes. All right, before I get you go, though, we got to do the Mary question. Okay. So if I don't any, think you're going to like my answer. No, I, 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 I'm sure I will love your answer. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, welcome to the show. Um, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area. And every year, his senior English class, uh, he takes two days, and they break down Thunder Road as a poem. They go through all the lyrics. He talks about the imagery, and um, Bruce is using the themes of the the poem. And then uh, they compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. And at the end of the two days, he looks at his class, and he asks the question, does Mary get in the car? So, Jerry, that's your question. I always assumed that it was a dream. Ah, I and like that. Tenth Avenue freeze out is the first is what happens when he wakes up. Wow, that that is a unique answer. The the big question is though, when you hear Backstreets, do you hear him say, "Remember all the movies, Jerry, we'd go see." I have not thought about that. So yeah, I sometimes hear him say Jerry instead of Terry. Oh, okay. Not every, not every time, not every time. Oh, that's but, a, you know. okay. I like but, that. I like that answer. That's that's a good answer. I appreciate thank you. that. Thank no, you. I like that a lot. Um, Jerry, this was a blast, and uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, um, you know, I may have to, we may have to do this again after the 
after he releases his album and you give a perspective on him, I think that would be fun. Well, I'm, I'm excited for it. I'll tell you what, as soon as I heard that first song, just being able to hear Max and Gary yeah. play like that together to me is just such a joy. Yeah. Uh, in in hearing his voice and you know I think the song's pretty good but I don't think it's just about the text of the song I think that's why it's rock and roll that's why it's music and you know um, hearing the piano and the bass and the drums and um, that drum fill uh, with his voice it's as much about that as it is about the words you know and I was talking to a guy um, about the podcast and he was saying that on Ghost. Like, you didn't hear Jake on Letter to You. Right. And, right. you know, like, so the way that we are as fans, oh, was Jake not in there? Blah, 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 you know, there's all that. Right, right. And then you, it's not toward the end of Ghosts, you know, all of a sudden you yeah. hear the saxophone and then you see him on the video, which I thought was mm. a really nice reveal. And uh, my friend was like, I wonder if that was planned. I mean, you know, like, it was that kind of the video, was they trying to tell that story? I, I which. Uh, it was great just seeing them together and, and hearing them together was just it it was a shot in the arm. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I'm excited for the movie. I don't I don't I don't know what Apple TV is, but I guess I'm going to figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It is. Um, right, this was a blast, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much. We will have you on again. Um, once again, uh, uh, Bandcamp. The Unlikely Optimist and His Domestic Adventures out October 16th. Um, are, what, are you on social media at all? Man, too much. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a Facebook page and an Instagram page and okay. in, in, in Twitter and What's stuff. What's your Twitter like handle? Uh, it's my old band. It's, uh, let me, it's the uh, at Black Swans Band. Yeah. Um, and, and my Instagram is Jerry David DeSica, and, and uh, I post lots of goofy pictures. Very nice. I appreciate yeah. that. This they're, all, was they're all PG rated. Very good. All right. Um, hang tight, and uh, we'll wrap this up. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please go out and listen to Jerry's music. Uh, it's going to be available everywhere. You can check out some of his earlier work. Um, in the meantime, remain social distance. Remember to wash your hands. Remember to wear an effing mask. Be good to each other because we need to be. And take care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you soon. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlessingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at SetLustingBruce, and my personal Twitter is at DFW. We have a website, www.SetLustingBruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Brew shirts, as well as a Merry Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. 
If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.